0: Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com.
1: It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, I guess uh, a big question, this midterm election, um, did the last general election, the pandemic election of 2020, With its necessary emphasis on early voting, voting by mail, did it usher in a a transformation in the way Americans vote? Now, as we're well into early voting in Iowa, across the country as well in these 2022 midterm elections, some states across the country have seen a surge of voters casting ballots at in-person voting sites and by mail. What about early voting trends here in Iowa? Let's find out by talking with a couple of county auditors in our state, one on our eastern border and one on the western border. Let's start off in Dubuque County on the Mississippi and talk with Kevin Dragado. He's the Dubuque County Auditor. Kevin, thank you for joining us.
2: Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me.
1: Kevin, you haven't been a Dubuque County Auditor very long, but uh, tell us, uh, how does this compare based on what you know with voting in other recent midterm elections?
2: I think what we're seeing here in Dubuque County is a uh, substantial decrease in early voting. Uh, Right now, we are looking, yes, correct. Uh, We are looking at approximately one third less uh, absentee and early voters than we've seen traditionally in midterms um, and in general elections, uh, where we would expect to finish around 20,000 early absentee voters. Uh, this cycle, we are looking to—we uh, were projecting to finish around thirteen thousand five hundred. So that's a substantial decrease.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm sure you're reading some of the same reports I am from across the country about the surge in some some states. So, uh, are you surprised by the the decline in early voting in your county?
2: We are—we are a little surprised. I think there are a couple factors that are playing into the decrease. Uh, Iowa's voting laws change, changed changed uh, in early 2021, and I think there's a lot of confusion. Uh, for voters as to how and when and where they can vote early. Um, what we noticed is that uh, the numbers are so far down for Dubuque County, uh, we're expecting to see a much higher turnout at the polls on Election Day.
1: Mm, okay, so so remind us of the new election laws, the shortened window for early voting. Uh, how has that changed this election?
2: So we went down from 29 days for early and absentee voting down to 20 days. And Uh, When you look at the windows that the auditor's offices are allowed to mail out the absentee ballots, uh, we have a five-day window in our office uh, and the other offices across the state that allow us to mail out those absentee ballots. Uh, That window started on October 19th and ended on October 24th. Um, So all the absentee ballots are sent and everything is out. And what we're looking at now is to uh, see how many people are coming in daily for early voting.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You mentioned confusion by because of the new law. Uh, talk about that more. Why should there be any confusion?
2: Well, if you think about it, your average voter is showing up to the polls once every two years. And uh, in the last three years, our election laws seem to be changing annually. And in order for anybody to get some sort of uh, regularity in where they're voting, how they're voting, uh, what the timing around the voting is, you need to have consistent laws. Uh, toss in redistricting and re and many people may be visiting a new polling location for the first time in 10 years, and I think that just adds further to the confusion.
1: Mm-hmm. And you're hearing from your workers, perhaps to you personally, questions uh, that show you there is confusion.
2: We are. We're, we're getting questions um, from people who are receiving absentee ballot request forms in the mail. We are getting questions from Uh, What types of IDs do people need to bring in on Election Day? We had a surge of people this past Monday, uh, the 24th, uh, because a number of voters thought that was the last day they could vote. In reality, it was the last day they could could request an absentee ballot. I think there is just a number of confusions out there right now.
1: Yeah. Okay. Talk a little bit about the drop sites. If you have an absentee ballot, you can also drop it off. Uh, there's also satellite voting. Has that been reduced, the, the number of drop boxes that are allowed in a county? Uh, what are you doing there? What are you seeing there?
2: Yes. So the the new legislation reduced the number of drop boxes that, that any county in the state can have to one. Um, so uh, in Dubuque County, our drop boxes behind the courthouse Uh, I would like to have more drop boxes spread throughout the county, given that we are on the furthest east of our county, Um, but the legislation uh, allows us to have one. Uh, As far as other ways that people can get absentee ballots back to us, they can drop it off to our office, they can put it in the mail. We typically recommend that if it's not in the mail by Thursday or Friday before the election, that they figure out a way to get it into our office in person.
1: Mm hmm. But but uh, do you think uh, with this decline that perhaps is attributable to new voting laws and some confusion there, do you think it will be made up um, on Election Day, a higher turnout on Election Day? Will that transfer, you think?
2: I, I certainly hope so. Um, I, I'm uh, we're hopeful that it will transfer. Uh, we are prepared with all of our polling locations are well staffed. Uh, we are ready to go. Um, But I do think there is a confusion. I think there's maybe a little bit of apathy. Um, We hear about elections almost on a daily basis, and we've been doing so for a number of years. Um, So hopefully people will get past that and and we'll get the the turnout we need at the polls.
1: You mentioned staffing. Any trouble recruiting enough poll workers, especially considering uh, these days and our hyper-partisan political atmosphere?
2: Yeah, we're still pretty lucky in Dubuque County. We started fairly early this year um, and we implemented a couple new things. We advertised on social media platforms for poll workers and then we implemented an online training tool. Uh, typically, a poll worker would have to take time off of work or school to come in and, uh, and be trained. We've uh, we, are allowed, we are allowed now and we have the capability to uh, do some online training with them. So they're taking courses online, taking quizzes, and those results are being uh, sent back to us. And that sort of makes it a little more uh, easy for people to uh, sign up to be a poll worker instead of taking three days off. They only need to take the one day off for election day.
1: Yeah. And poll workers train to deal with any, I guess, misbehavior at polls, right?
2: We do. A component of our training this year is a uh, de-escalation training and, and just how to speak to people. And, uh, so we train all of our poll workers uh, to uh, listen, to, uh, to not uh, elevate their voices, to sort of try to diffuse any situations. And then we also uh, remind the public that their poll workers are their, their people they're buying groceries from, or maybe their kids go to school together, or maybe they sit next to each other in church. So this is the epitome of what community is about. These are your, your neighbors and your family and your friends who are working those polls.
1: Yeah. Do you anticipate any problems with behavior? Um, you know, we hear reports from across the country of people sort of self-appointed poll watchers, people trying to intimidate in the guise of being a poll watcher. Any of that anticipated?
2: We don't anticipate anything. That being said, we do plan for all uh, situations. Uh, we do have a couple of good party uh Chairs in, in Dubuque County. Uh, we've been working closely with them as to the lists of the poll watchers and making sure that everybody is aware of what poll watchers may and may not do. Um, like I said, I hope that we don't have any issues, but we are well prepared in case we, in the event that we do.
1: Kevin Dragado is the Dubuque County Auditor. Thank you very much for giving us the view from the east side of the state, Kevin. Take care. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> Well, from Dubuque County on the Mississippi, let's fly west to a border county on the Missouri. Pat Gill is the Woodbury County Auditor. Welcome to our program. That's great to be here. Pat, I understand you've been working in your position for over, uh, well, over 20 years. And uh, we just spoke, as I mentioned, with the Dubuque County Auditor. He's saying there's been a decline compared to... Uh, to uh, similar recent uh, elections in in early voting. What are you seeing there in Woodbury County?
4: Yes, that's what, uh, as auditors, and we prepare for each election, we look back at the last uh, most similar election, which would have been the the 2018 primary, and that was pre-pandemic. And uh, in that contest, four years ago we had uh, 36,000 voters and 16,000 of those folks voted early Uh, and uh, it was a trend that had continued was that every time uh, every election it just creep up a little bit higher the number of people who were voting early but in uh, 2018 we had uh, 40 days of early voting uh, as opposed to now in 2020 it was cut to 29 and now it is uh, 20 days of early voting. And perhaps the biggest impact is something that I'd always done as a county auditor. I had mailed out uh, absentee ballot request forms to every active voter in the county. And that was a very mm-hmm. popular program, the way to do things. And now the law change is that uh, I can no longer do that. And it's going to take a couple election cycles for the voters here to figure out that they no, are no longer getting those mailed to them automatically. And we've heard uh, from a lot of folks, uh, mostly elderly and disabled, that are very disappointed that uh, we, we don't mail those ballots out to them. And, and a lot of them are finding out too late that they have to request that on their own, even though I didn't mail to every active voter and told them about the law change. But some people just don't read the mail.
1: Yeah, in the Dubuque County Auditor told us that definitely a decline in in numbers. He attributed that to new voting laws, um, the shorter window for early voting, but also some confusion on the part of early voters. Are, are you seeing that as well?
4: Yes, uh, people just uh, don't understand what the new. Uh, there's a new deadline. They used to be able to request the absentee ballot request was right up until. The day before, there was no limit, and now it's uh, 15 days. And so people are still having them call, uh, are calling our office now, uh, trying to get a request form so that they can have a ballot mailed to them. And unfortunately, we can't do that anymore. We have uh, about 7,000 requests that are out now. um, And so I don't think we're going to be anywhere near the 16,000 early voters that we had in 2018 so it's going to have a big impact and then the concern is is that uh, we have new uh, precincts and polling places because of the redistricting so trying to get people to vote early you know to avoid any chaos or lines on election day
1: yeah do, do you think that the decline in early voting is due to just the interest in this election compared to 2018 or do you think it's it's really that there are some extra hurdles some new laws to learn about
4: it's absolutely uh, the law change, uh, because uh, I think there's um, at least as much, if not more, than what was occurring in 2018, as far as that uh, gubernatorial year. Absolutely, that I believe that it is uh, the result of the legislative changes.
1: And you, you may only have one, what is it, one drop box per county, right? So that's a, a difference, I don't know, from previous years?
4: Yes. In uh, 2020, we had a drop box in the uh, front of the courthouse. In uh, Sioux City, the Woodbury County Courthouse it takes up a quarter block, so it's a very small courthouse footprint, and we have to, and the, the ballot box has to be within that footprint. So we have one drive up uh, in the back and the courthouse in an alley between city hall and uh, courthouse it's it's widely used but people did we had to remove the one that we had out front where people could just uh, walk up to it uh, another change that we've made since we had just 20 days, we are open all 20 days at the Long Lines Family Rec Center, which was petitioned by the League of Women Voters, because I used to always do that on my own, too. Now the auditor, due to the legislative change, cannot open up an early voting site, a satellite site on their own. It has to be petitioned for now.
1: Pat, I'm, I'm sure you've taken in all the news accounts of uh, polling on uh, worries on on the part of Americans about you know fraudulent voting, election in election integrity. What can you say to listeners who are are worried uh, about the counting of, of ballots accurately?
4: I've uh, encouraged them to you know educate themselves and take a look at the process. Uh, for instance, this morning, we're having our public test, and that's testing our equipment. That is the tests that are done on our equipment. And as far as program, before we deploy them to the polling place, we're having that at nine o'clock. And the Secretary of State, Paul Pate, is going to be here for that. And it's good to call attention to that because people – we rarely have anybody come to the public test so that they should come and uh, see how the ballots are uh, tested and they can they're free to put together their own test deck and run them through those machines to see how they record them and then on the election day uh, the absentee process if that's open to the public they should come and watch and see how the the teams uh, you know that are uh, party balanced uh, process those ballots and that they're counted through our central uh, count machine. And then afterwards, we have a post-election audit that we don't know. The Secretary of State's office uh, draws a precinct randomly the day after the election. So there's no way that we know um, what uh, precinct is going to be counted. So we hand count uh, one precinct. And, and since we've been doing it the last several years, it's been 100% accurate as to the way the machines count those ballots.
1: Quickly, before we say goodbye, any trouble recruiting enough poll workers uh, because of our political environment? Well, actually,
4: we've done uh, pretty well with that, but uh, there are concerns. Uh, precinct collection officials have voiced concerns about security and that sort of things because they're hearing the same thing we all are. I, ha- I don't know of any uh, threats or anything like that that have been made in other areas of the country, but here um, we haven't heard any of that, but the precinct collection officials are concerned and they are talking about it.
1: Okay. Uh, Pat Gill, Woodbury County Auditor, thank you very much for giving us the view from the western side of the state, and uh, we wish you well, you and your your staff. Uh, take care, and thanks for this conversation, Pat.
4: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. It truly was river-to-river river. going with uh, Dubuque and Woodbury County on opposite sides. <laughs> appreciate it. All
1: right. Thank it you. was. Bye now. Bye. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, let's now check in with one of our state's political reporters, someone we like to turn to often here on River to River to find out what he's been covering in this final stretch of the midterm campaign. Stephen Gruber-Miller is the House and politics reporter for the Des Moines Register. Hello again, Stephen. Hi, Ben. Well, redistricting, a big story in this election cycle, and Iowa's top Senate Republican pushing back on allegations that he doesn't live in the district he's been seeking to represent. Uh, You've been uh, covering this story. Uh, Tell us, what is it about?
5: Yeah, that's right. So the Iowa Constitution requires state senators and representatives to live in their district for at least 60 days before the election in order to be eligible to be a candidate there. And a report by KCRG-TV and KCCI uh, reported that the condo that Senator Whitford says is registered to vote at and says he lives at in Grimes hadn't used water since February. Now, the senator since provided me with a water bill that shows there was a charge for a monthly period that ended in October. And he says you know, he showed me his driver's license, says it's got the Grimes address on there. So he's saying he meets the requirements. He owns the home in Grimes, and that's where he lives.
1: So what are Democrats alleging here? They're alleging that, what, he may own the residence, but he doesn't reside there enough or at all?
5: Yeah, they're saying he still lives in the home. He he also still owns an Ankeny, and, and he says he's changed his residence. And the law says that the county auditors can't essentially, you know, go follow up and, and track down information or claims that, that people's voter registration isn't correct. They have to treat everyone uniformly. The Iowa Secretary of State doesn't have any kind of mechanism to to remove the senator from the ballot. The period to challenge his candidacy has passed, and so it's essentially, at this point, seems to be up to the voters to decide if they're going to elect him or not.
1: Okay, let's move on to a bigger picture. Of course, Majority Leader Whitfer controls the agenda in the Iowa Senate, Uh, Republicans holding a quite significant majority, 32 to 18, Uh, Let's have you comment on the big picture for both chambers, looking at the Iowa legislature with its new district. A reminder, Iowa has a Republican trifecta that's been in place since 2016, the Republican Party controlling not only the governorship, but both chambers of the state legislature. Tell us, uh, how firmly are Republicans in control of each chamber?
5: Yeah, well, they have uh, solid majorities right now, and they're hoping to keep those. But I think the, the big picture thing to keep in mind is that even if Republicans maintain their majorities, there's going to be a lot of change in the legislature this next year, and that's because of redistricting. So the process of drawing the new district boundaries has al- already resulted in many, many lawmakers retiring, uh, deciding that they don't you know want to run in a new district. Many of them have moved, like Senator Whitfer as we've mentioned, but others as well to avoid challenges between either members of their own party or the other party. Some of them were unable to avoid those challenges and face primary races against fellow incumbents already in June, and some of them face challenges against other lawmakers in uh, November. And so there's going to be a lot of new members in the legislature this coming year. Right. Uh,
1: let me uh, ask you, if you have any a myriad of races, of course, many legislative races, all of the House members, uh, some of the Senate members uh, up for re-election, Have any races uh, uh, that stand out for for you in particular?
5: So there are plenty of competitive races this year. Many of them lie right in the Des Moines metro. Topping the list as far as spending is a contest between two Senate incumbents, like I was talking about, who ended up together because of the redistricting process. That's Senator Jake Chapman, who's a Republican, and Senator Sarah Garriott, who's a Democrat. You know, between the two of them, they've raised and then received uh, contributions from outside groups about $1.5 million in that race. And so there's a lot of spending right here in the Des Moines Metro. That's not the only race. There's a race in Ankeny between Republican Mike Bussolo and Democrat Todd Brady that's uh, raking in a bunch of money. And then there are several House races in Ankeny, in Altoona, and other parts of the Des Moines Metro that are being hotly contested by both parties.
1: Mm -hmm. One of the statewide races, lower profile statewide races, you've been writing about the Iowa Attorney General. It looks like Tom Miller, the longest serving uh, state attorney general, may continue in his position, uh, according to polls, right?
5: Well, polls aren't predictions. Polls are a snapshot in time. This is what we see right now and things can change. But yeah, uh, the Iowa poll showed that Tom Miller has a 16 point lead over his Republican challenger, Brenna Byrd. You know, that was a a couple of weeks ago in in sort of early to mid-October. We'll see if Byrd can kind of close the gap down the stretch. She's received a lot of money from national Republicans, you know, about $2 million from the Republican Attorney General's Association. Republicans really think that this is a good year for them and they want to be well positioned to potentially unseat Miller, who is the longest serving attorney general in the country. And they're hopeful that they can uh, defeat him this year. But Miller, our polling shows, has the support of a small but potentially significant share of Republicans who have known him for a long time and potentially are used to voting for him. And he's doing better with uh, independence than Byrd. So it'll be an interesting race to watch on election night. Stephen,
1: once these midterms over, we know all too well we'll dive right into the next election cycle, uh, looking toward the 2024 caucuses. And uh, you wrote about uh, a U.S. Senator, Marsha Blackburn, campaigning in Iowa this week, a Republican on behalf of Republican candidates. So I guess she, she, though, denied that she was here because she's thinking about a run for the presidency, right?
5: Yeah, this is a useful time for, you know, politicians to kind of come in and act as surrogates on behalf of their fellow elected officials, right? And so that's what we see Senator Blackburn doing here. She's a Republican from Tennessee, and she came to support Senator Grassley. You know, Democrats say that proves it's a close race, If he needs to bring in, uh, you know, names from around the country to support him. The other person who's coming here, as as your uh, listeners probably know, is former President Donald Trump who will be in Sioux City next week for a pre-election rally. Yep. And so, you know, it's all about boosting turnout, and it's all about, uh, you know, whoever comes here being able to sort of take credit, so to speak, and say, I helped you out. And then if they come back for a caucus campaign, uh, they've earned some goodwill. They've put in the work. People are favorable towards them. So uh, we have seen many, many visits from national Republicans who were talked about as potential 2024 contenders, Uh, Tom Cotton, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, Ted Cruz, Mike Pompeo, and others who I can't think of right now. But they've all been here and they all uh, will continue to be.
1: Okay, Stephen Gruber-Miller of the Des Moines Register. Thanks again, Stephen. Thanks, Ben. Coming up after a short break, I'll talk with our health reporter, Natalie Krebs, and we'll meet a Palestinian writer in residence here in Iowa. He's a political refugee when we continue. It's News Buzz Edition. I'm Ben Kiefer, back in just a moment.
0: Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at UpstreamFM.com, it's your Friday news buzz edition of River to River from
1: Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Federal law uh, bars many immigrants on visas, also on green cards, from getting Medicaid for their first five years in the country. Now, states can choose to opt people out of this waiting period when they're pregnant, but many Midwestern states haven't done this, and this leaves immigrants with few options for affordable prenatal care. Our health reporter, Natalie Krebs, has been looking into and reporting on the situation here in Iowa. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Ben. Tell us the story of the women immigrants in the state that uh, you looked after.
6: Right. So the story is basically on this federal policy that dates back to the Welfare Reform Act that basically bars many immigrants on visas and some even have green cards from getting public assistance. And this includes Medicaid. Um, And so for this particular story, I looked at one group in particular, which is pregnant women. Um, So for this story, I looked at uh, spoke to Embark, which is a group that works with immigrants, particularly those from Myanmar. And then I also spoke to a woman from the Democratic Republic of the Congo about what it was like to come here um, on visas. And then they were pregnant and essentially not able to get Medicaid just because of their immigration status, which meant they had very limited options for prenatal care.
1: Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the history of this law. It goes back a few decades. And and also, what would be the rationale for uh, banning immigrants um, for five years from such services?
6: Right. So that's what's odd about this is you really have to go back a bit. You have to go back to 1996 under President Bill Clinton's Welfare Reform Act. Um, This was a policy within that that basically barred uh, immigrants... many immigrants who have visas and green cards um, from getting public assistance for their first five years in the country or until they became citizens. Um, So this includes Medicaid. Uh, You know, the, the public policy experts I spoke to said pretty much the only rationale behind this was to sort of generate a little bit of savings. It's interesting. This was something President Clinton is on record saying he didn't really like this policy. He didn't really feel like it was fair to immigrants. He had kind of said he wanted to, quote, fix this before he left office. That never happened. It's still in effect today. You know, uh, basically, certain immigrants on visas and green cards are still banned from many forms of public assistance for their first five years in the country.
1: Mm-hmm. So so what are the options with this ban for five years for Immigrants who are pregnant. Um, How how do you how do you um, you know take care of the pregnancy uh, into the birth?
6: Right. So you know, um, pregnant immigrants and children reported were sort of put in this special category going back to two thousand nine when they were redoing the CHIP program. That's the Children's Insurance Program, public insurance program for low income children, where they basically allowed states to opt these two groups out of it. in, in some states like Iowa, Iowa lawmakers back in 2009 opted to opt children out of this. And so children can get this coverage, but pregnant women can't. Um, Iowa lawmakers, for some reason, decided not to opt pregnant women out of this. So this leads us to today, which basically means, you know, women under this ban who can't obtain Medicaid have limited options, basically. You know, they can go to the ACA, that marketplace. But I, I've been told, you know, it's still too expensive. We're talking about high deductibles. It's still thousands of dollars, you know, even if you can get a plan under the ACA. Um, and outside of that, you know, if you don't have access to employer-sponsored insurance, it's basically relying on free medical clinics for prenatal care.
1: Yeah, and especially, especially problematic for high-risk pregnancies, for instance.
6: Yeah, problematic for all kinds of pregnancies. But, you know, I, I went to the Iowa City Free Medical Clinic and and they really work to mirror, you know, the care that you get at other clinics like UIHC um, to their clientele they have there. But they, they still have limited equipment, limited resources, which means when they see patients who have high risk pregnancies, you know, they're talking about wanting or needing extra tests for these women that are thousands of dollars or, or needing Extra all this ultrasound equipment for in-depth ultrasounds they don't have, and so it can be really difficult at these clinics, you know, to to get that extra prenatal care that high-risk patients need.
1: Yeah, any outlook uh, for better conditions uh, for the future for immigrant uh, women?
6: Well, I mean, this it, it's up to state lawmakers. Um, they're the ones that have the power to to be able to change this provision. Um, To be able to write policy that would allow pregnant women to be opted in. Other policy experts told me there could just be general reform, you know, that would change this five-year ban in general for immigrants. Um, So it's it's really up to policymakers as to whether or not they want to kind of change this current policy that's been in place for decades.
1: Okay, an interesting uh, sort of wrinkle in our health care for immigrants. Um, thank you for reporting on it, uh, Natalie Krebs, IPR Health Reporter. Thanks, Ben. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Established riders from some 30 countries around the world are nearing the end of their residency here in Iowa. They've been here for about two months connecting with each other and also connecting with audiences during their many events in person and online it's part of the university of iowa's international writing program uh, they've had been having writers residencies since going way back to the late 1960s and in this latest batch we've been getting to know some of the writers here on river to river let's meet gayat almadun he is a Palestinian poet and filmmaker, born in Damascus. He immigrated to Sweden in 2008. He now splits his time between Berlin and Stockholm. He's the author of four volumes of poetry in Arabic, and they've all been translated widely. Uh, Welcome to our studio, Gayat.
7: Welcome. Thank you so much.
1: Uh, Let's start off by having you tell us a little bit about
7: yourself and your writing. Introduce us. Uh, to to your work. Yes, as you say, my name is Gayat I born to Palestinian father and Syrian mother. I think without the Palestinian uh, Palestine being occupied my father will never go to Syria and he will not be my meet my mother I will not be exist. I'm a result of this uh, What happened in Palestine 1948 I born in Damascus I left uh, Most of my life there when I was 30s I immigrated running away from from the dictatorship to Sweden I was invited to poetry festival and it ended as I am a political refugee. And then I became a Swedish citizen and now I choose my place. I choose Berlin. It's a very cosmopolitan, multicultural, diverse city. Yeah, I write poetry. I stopped writing anything else like more than ten years ago, so I don't stop writing articles or critique or teaching. Now I, I, I do only poetry and I write only in Arabic.
1: And I understand you, you're, you're able to read to us from your latest collection, Adrenaline, from 2017. By the way, it was long listed for a 2018 Best Translated Book Award. Um, yeah, introduce us to, to the, the poem you're going to read. And I understand we'll be able to hear it in Arabic, this short poem, and then your own English translation.
7: Yeah. So this poem called The Details, it's written in 2012. And published in my third uh, Arabic book, and then it's appeared in uh, Adrenaline in the English translation because Adrenaline have poems from three uh, of my books. Uh, the poem is very long, but I choose one part uh, because in this part uh, they when mention the word Berlin. And, and when I wrote it in two thousand twelve, I in that time it was like seven or n- eight years before I moved to Berlin. So I don't know it's like. In that time, I didn't know even I will go to Berlin. So I will read it in Arabic and then in English. في مدينة وعيد اعمارها مثل برلين يكمن السر الذي يعرفه الجميع وهو أن لن أكرر ما هو معروف لكنني سأخبركم بما لا تعرفون ليست مشكلة الحرب في من يموتون مشكلتها في من يبقون أحياء
1: بعدها. And now the English.
7: In a reconstructed city like Berlin lies a secret that everyone knows, which is that the... No. I will not repeat what is known, but I will tell you something you don't know the problem with war is not those who die the problem is those who remain alive after the war mm.
1: very powerful words there um uh, uh, you I understand you you're writing very many that much um, focuses on war and destruction as we heard there Death, um, exile, and homesickness—you are a political refugee, as you you mentioned. How much of your writing is autobiographical, drawn from your own experiences?
7: Actually, everything, because I believe that literature and art reflect uh, our memories and experience. It didn't reflect it like a mirror, uh, but like a broken mirror. So when you got from what you got from literature is. A like small parts from here and there in a very uh, problematic way that they give the meaning in a deep way. And I always uh, say when people say for me that your poetry is political, immediately I say, no, this is not politics. This is my life because the, the writer and the artist have the right to reflect his life exactly like my Swedish colleagues uh, they, because they have living in a peaceful situation Sweden have no war for 200 years they reflect the peaceful time the darkness of the winter the cold the weather the nature i also have the right to reflect uh, my memory and my experience the problem is in my life so if if i didn't if i didn't uh, reflect what i have i will be isolated from reality and denial about what's going on in my country that I inherited from my father, Palestine, or in the country where I born now and it's totally destroyed by the Syrian dictatorship. So you, you can't be isolated from reality. In the same time, you try to uh, to save yourself by uh, draw, drawing inside this uh, political thing. You, you need to keep the, the, uh, the art in your art. The, like you understand? So I try to make the balance between these two things. But in, in reality, to have a poem, not politics, it's impossible. Uh, what, what happened is that the people write a poem and then they clean it. They, they make self-sense to, to take away every politics and then you got a, a poem without any politics because politics is everything. It's a, it's a gender, it's a class, it's background. It's everything around us is connected to political things.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Gaieta, you have been in, in this uh, international writing program at the University of Iowa, the residency for about a couple of months with writers from around the world, some 30 countries. Uh, what have been the highlights for you over the m- uh, many past weeks? Uh, what can you point to as something that will, that will stay with you, that perhaps will inspire new poetry?
7: Yeah, I have been in a lot of uh, residencies and scholarships, but there is nothing like this. This is not a residency or a scholarship. This is a writing program. You put 35 writers from all over the world together. No one able to do this in the world outside the United States of America. It's impossible to make 35 visa, 35 tickets, 35. It's impossible. It's like, it's one, you, you got this one time in, in your life. And I was really lucky to be here and to meet all these great writers who like what I learned in this uh, 10 weeks from my colleagues is unbelievable. And you know, like, as we say, it's impossible to meet your family every day these days. And I was with these writers every day having breakfast, traveling and like this. So the experience here is unique, actually. And before i came i was so suspicious like we you know foreigners when th- we think about america we see it as like as like cross like chicago up houston down uh, on the right you have new york and the left you have la and this area in the middle of america is foggy for us we have a lot of clichés and a lot of stereotypes about the bible belts and cornfields and i i i never thought i will uh, fall in love with a, s- a small huh. city like iowa i never and I'm really, now I'm, I'm really fall in love with this city, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you understand me? So it was, in, in my stereotypes and cliches, America is the cost, you know. But there is something else happening in this city. The compost, the young uh, people around you, the atmosphere, and that you, they make the scholarship in a way that it's began uh, Very hot weather, and now it's very cold. So we saw all the seasons. It's it's something very special and unique, actually.
1: What what has this? This is intriguing, and I think it it touches me and other listeners as Iowans that you would say you fell in love with Iowa. What what have? Can you give us a concrete example of a a a surprise, something that really impressed you about about Iowa? Uh,
7: Yeah, for for example. the nature and animals—they were so surprisingly for me that because they, in my in my mind, this kind of two things didn't connect. So you have very hot weather in the summer, and then you have very cold winter. It's little different than Swedish, Swedish and German. Maybe it's similar to the Ukrainian weather. I think the, like uh, the light. For example, yesterday the light in the sky was really uh, something very special. Uh, I think uh, uh, the feeling uh, of young, I don't know how to describe this, my English is so uh, so bad, but the city, because of the university, is full of like the, the, uh, the blood of young people, like the, the happiness, I don't know how to describe it, the dopamine is high. So I, I remember I arrived, the first day I arrived, it was night and I went to the city Accidentally, it was a Friday night and accidentally it was the first week of the university. And there were hundreds of young, happy people in the street that I say, OK, this look like Berlin, actually, like I was not expecting this in a small city. <laughs> yeah, 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 So the, the, the first experience was good. And, you know, when we say in Arabic, paradise without people is the hell. So if the God want to punish you, he put you in the paradise alone. And what make me love the city of Iowa, Iowa City, is the people I met. They were very nice, very, very, uh, like, like uh, very warm people, like uh, everyone around us are like this. So I, before I fall in love with the city, I fall in love with the people and the general city and how the way they say hello and ask you and, you know, I, I like that so much.
1: All right. Well, Gayat, your your words uh, about Iowa and your experience here warm our hearts. Thank you very much for this conversation. We wish you well in the future, in the remaining days of this residency. Gayat al is a Palestinian poet, a filmmaker, uh, now living in Stockholm and in Berlin. Gayat, what a pleasure to meet you. Thank you.
7: Thank you. Pleasure to meet you, too. Thank you.
1: Well, that's it for this News buzz edition of River to River from IPR News on this 28th day of October, the very last Friday. And uh, Mark Simmet now joins us now to groove us into the weekend. Hi, Mark. Well, hi, Ben. With Halloween just days away, I have a spine-tingling sense. You've picked out some, <laughs> perhaps some ghostly good selections
8: or something to do with Halloween, have you? Uh, yeah, I definitely kept that in mind since we are still so close to Halloween. Now, this first uh, selection, not, you know, not specifically about Halloween, but it is, uh, you might think of that with the title and the lyrics of the song. It's from Marcus King. He is a young uh, songwriter, vocalist, and guitarist out of Greenville, South Carolina. And his latest album is called Young Blood, produced by Dan Auerbach of the Black Keys. I would describe uh, the music of Marcus King as bluesy Southern rock. And this one is called Blood on the Tracks.
1: on the tracks. Marcus King there. Nice selection, Mark. We have time for one more.
8: Well, this one is uh, more directly related to actual Halloween. It's from the British band Muse. They've been around for a couple of decades or so. Their music harkens back to the uh, rock of the 70s and 80s, I think. Safe to say. And their new album is Will of the People. And this is a a rather dramatic, over-the-top rock song and it's called you make me feel like it's halloween
3: you got me checking my mirror you make me feel like i'm on the run where'd you hide the gun with a kitchen knife in your hand are you the poison are you the cure i'm not so sure Like it's Halloween. Halloween. It's Halloween. Halloween. You cut me off from my friends. You cut me off from my family. I'm in misery.
1: Okay, Mark, I can I, I can uh, picture a Halloween party with many dancing in costume to that one. Muse, you make me feel like it's Halloween. We'll go out uh, with that as well. Thank you so much, uh, Mark Simmet of IPR Studio One, the best in new music and old favorites. Uh, check it out. Mark, uh, you
0: have a great weekend and uh, uh, a great Halloween.
1: All
8: right, you too, Ben.
0: Thanks. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. River to River today produced by
1: Caitlin Troutman and Samantha McIntosh, our executive producer, is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Take care and until next week.